McClellan. Thanks for hanging out with me. On today's show, Maureen Ellsbury and I are joined by our good friend Ben McGee. Ben is a scientist and explorer who's been on several TV shows, but he's currently on a new series called Black Files Declassified on the Science Channel. Ben's going to tell us a bit about this show and the premiere episode that deals with the U.S. Space Force. We also get into other topics like Bigelow Aerospace and Skinwalker Ranch. It's a fun conversation, so let's jump into it. Ben, it's so good to have you on the show, buddy. Thanks for joining us to talk about some strange stuff. We love talking strange stuff with you because you're a strange guy. You're just like us. You're you're a geek at heart, and uh, we have so many things to talk about with you today. And first of all, I want to say it was so much fun seeing you on TV again. Yeah, uh, Black Files Declassified. It finally landed. Yeah, yeah so we, I had uh, no idea this show was coming. So tell us a little bit, little bit about this show. Well, it was a little bit of a surprise for us, too, actually. I mean, things have changed What with the, the coronavirus situation. Everything's up in the air. And I don't think we, we filmed this thing uh, about about a year ago. And but we weren't expecting it to go on air until the summer. So suddenly, just a few days ago, we got a note uh, that Science Channel said, "Hey, we're rolling it out in like three days. Go <laughs> tell everyone you know." It's like, well, okay. And then uh, so yes, this thing this thing landed. I hadn't actually seen uh, the rough cut, so I was very very pleasantly. Uh, I don't want to say surprised because that's not not fair to these guys. I worked with them before, but uh, you know, it was. I was really impressed with how it came together. And, you know, I had a hand in sort of helping stitch together some of the, the concepts that went along with that episode because I'm such a space geek. And I mean, just I thought it was a fun ride. They, they crammed so much information in there. It was like every time they hit another, you know, content moment. I'm like, yes, they got they mentioned that. Or, oh, hey, they're mentioning that, too. And, All right. Hey, they're, so I, I thought it was jam packed. Uh, maybe too much. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I noticed it was a, a constant stream of characters in the first episode of People We Know, um, and, and that was kind of cool to see how each person contributed to this concept of, and I'm sure we'll see more of this as the show progresses, but this concept of all these secret black files that the government uh, is working on and how that relates to um, aerospace and, and the Space Force and the whole works. Yeah, in this case, I think it was really... Um, I was pleased that they got a, a show out there that really illustrated that the Space Force is not a new idea. It's not Trump's idea. It actually has been fully developed and realized in many ways for a half century. So for people who are into this kind of stuff, uh, who think that, I mean, it was just, yeah, look, look it was just AIAA, their cover piece is, is Space Force going to protect the space economy? Uh, I mean, it just showed up. So, I mean, this is, it's timely. And uh, I think it's important for people to understand this didn't come out of the blue and things are just now over the last few years being declassified legitimately that show just how much time and effort and work and in some cases how much of a threat there's been from foreign adversaries with respect to everything we've got in space. So uh, I, I was pretty thrilled to be a part of that episode. Just in the past week, I believe, you know, I was kind of tickled to see headlines about the Space Force completing the space fence, you know, and, and sort of talking yeah. about it like it was this brand new thing that the Space Force brought forward. And that's to your point. I mean, these are things that have been in the works for a very long time. Yes. And it, there aren't enough conversations. I mean, you know, there are popular arguments that are fun to have. And I mean, the things like you, you probably saw the Space Force uniforms. There was a, the, the memes went crazy. Yeah. That, oh, it's forest camouflage. It's the stupidest thing in the world. There's no forest in space. And, it, you know, every, every one of us who's into it just sort of bash our head against the keys. It's like, no, it's, this, it's the same Air Force uniform all the people sitting in the forest in California are wearing today. They just put a new Space Force thing on this. Like, ah, I know it's fun to make fun of, but there's, there are real answers here, and it, it doesn't have to be stupid. You know, there's important work going on. 
so yeah, again, any legitimate conversation that I think we can have about the space force is a good one. Yeah, and I think I think what's really cool is is covering and uh, if people watch the the episode, I don't think it's a really big spoiler to to talk about the X thirty seven B at all, but um, that there uh, was this sort of mission that's been going on for it. What it's on its fifth mission now. I mean, yeah, has it relaunched yeah. since October? It landed in um, October of twenty nineteen. Is it? We don't know if it's launched again or not. Correct? Yeah, I, to my knowledge, I don't think it has again. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's ten years of flights <laughs> that they've been doing with a military space plane, and it just no one, no one really seemed to care. And I, it's always right. fascinating. And, and launching classified payloads, right? right? I mean, it's been putting. Right. We know it's been putting things in space, but we, I mean, we know some of those things, but we don't know all the things. Yeah, right. one of the things I thought was super interesting about that was the fact that the payload bay is only, I think they said uh, somewhere I saw seven feet by four feet. So yeah. the amount of technology they can cram in that small space, can you tell us what, you, what maybe we might be looking at or what you think? Oh, well, I mean, you know, with the minute, just look at what, what can we put in our pockets now, right? Yeah, that's pretty true. That would have filled up buildings, you know, just 30 years ago. So what could you fit in something the size of a phone booth? Or, or should I say, what couldn't you fit in something the size of a phone true. booth? Uh, yeah, so, you know, there's there's a lot of that going on. One thing that, that didn't make the episode just for timing, they were so jam-packed, is I think some of the steam behind why have there been continuous energy towards something like, a, it was called the Space Guard, the Space Force, uh, the Space Corps, a lot of names tossed around over the last 10 years. Um, the, all of the anti-satellite maneuvers that other countries have been performing, Russia for the last six or seven years now has been sending up routine, regular satellites, just like us, some of them classified on their side, and they declare, we're launching two things, and then three things pop out. And then we watched the third thing, and it's it started in several cases doing little dozy dos around communication satellites. And the poor communication sat vendors are calling up the Air Force Space Command, going, "Oh my God, what are the Russians doing to our stuff? Like, what do we do?" And we have no teeth that we know about, right? Uh, and so there's a real threat to orbital commerce. You know, India performed an anti-satellite maneuver. Russia rolled out new mobile launch platforms just a couple of years ago for taking stuff out of the sky from the ground. And, and we are, for people who watch what we're doing in response, we're lagging way behind. Uh, China's first move was in 07. They blew one of their own satellites out of the sky and said, oh, it was unsafe. We had to, we had to take it out. And, but we all knew what they were saying, really. Uh, and we're just now, we're late to the party, in my opinion, and we're just catching up. So there's a lot of, a lot of activity out there. And in, in my view, the best analogy is the Navy. I mean, we stood up a Navy on the sea to protect our own merchant ships from pirates off the coast of Africa. So in a way, this is the exact same thing. So much of our lives and our commerce rely on all of our assets in space. Well, yeah, it doesn't, it's not too much of a stretch to say maybe we should be able to defend them. It's just me. In the episode, you brought up Saint. And when you were, you know, showing the documents that were addressing Saint, you know, I couldn't help but think, and I've got to bring this up because, of course, we love UFOs on this show. I couldn't help but think that conspiracy theorists would love, you know, reading some of the description of what Saint was, and that was to examine unidentified objects in space. Of course, we're talking about <laughs> aliens here, right, Ben? Come on. <clears throat> well, you know, it depends on, uh, I suppose they would be included too, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's all on the table, anything unidentified, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, of course, the Russians were more on people's minds at the time, but uh, sure. It's, yeah, and I, th- I think, you know, Saint, Saint is, it wasn't my idea. I, you know, the show stitched things together in a very linear way. But finding that one mention, I mean, there were three things. This is broader context for the episode. In, in that there are 22,000 pages of documents were declassified by the National Reconnaissance Office in 15 on the manned orbiting laboratory, the whole program. They just took the whole package and went and declassified the whole thing at once. We're talking boring budget reports, everything, some cool pictures, some not cool pictures, junk, like it's just all out there. And there were three kinds of things that I found that were redacted. One thing had to do with the telescope performance, which 
that's sensible. Okay, if it, we had super you know capabilities back then, I can see why we wouldn't want to reveal that now. Fine, that makes sense. Um, and I, as an interesting sidebar, I don't know if you guys noticed there were a bunch of pictures of Hubble that they kept cutting to when they were talking about reconnaissance satellites. Well, there's a lot of connective tissue that suggests that the Hubble design was actually uh, related to a secret uh, hexagon spy satellite design. Uh, yeah, if you Google it, it's, it's on Wikipedia too. You can kind of there's some there's some interesting little like where exactly did that design come from? And then my own inference, I think this is hysterical. You guys remember there was a problem with Hubble, right? Like that. Do you remember that the mirror was wrong? They had to do this very risky, yeah. you know, twice the orbital height the shuttle to go fix the mirror. Yep. As it turns out, Hubble was extremely nearsighted. Really, really, really nearsighted. Uh, almost like maybe somebody read the blueprints for a satellite that was supposed to be looking at something a couple hundred miles away as opposed to something light years away. They forgot to change the mirror. I don't know. It's, it's, it's fun to start to speculate on all that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, uh, I totally forgot where I was going. All right. I got excited about Hubble. <laughs> it's easy to get excited well, about Hubble, yeah. so I completely understand. I just, on, on the on the flip side of, of talking about you know Hubble and and other satellites that we know how to track, and I am of course just going to do one more UFO point here, is the <laughs> fact that these black files and objects in space that are not uh, being tracked and that we don't know exist probably could be uh, accountable for a lot of. Um, items that people are confusing as UFOs because as UFO researchers we're taught to uh, look up to see if it was a satellite uh, on, you know, um, databases and other objects that could be tracked by space. But if these are objects that can be traced, then likely uh, it's the possibility that yes, we could be seeing these uh, unofficial uh, unacknowledged satellites and or other objects. And that kind of threw me for a loop a little bit because I'm remembering uh, certain sightings I had because I know, and you, correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I definitely could be wrong, but it was my understanding at least back uh, about um, nearly 10 years ago that it's very rare that you would see three satellites converge passing over at the same intersection point. And that is something that I uh, actually saw once. Three approached passed by each other and kept going. And so now I'm thinking, what is the possibility that the X-37B, it was uh, probably, I think, a little before its time that I, that I spotted this, or another object or plane like that could be the cause to where it would converge at the same time as two passing satellites? Yeah, I mean, there's, there is a lot, that whole world out there. There are people who, you know, are obviously tracking that sort of thing, but we don't have access to that out here. And yeah, that's, I mean, if you were taking in the critical perspective, you definitely have to rule something like that out first. And so, yeah, I think that's an excellent, an excellent point. There's some stuff going on up there that we know about, but that no one will talk about. And I think that's another reason why um, I know that, that we've all encountered these confusing scenarios where the military would kind of appear to be okay with what's obviously a ridiculous an inaccurate explanation for something. This is another reason why that might be true is to say, Oh, you know, this was just a, I don't know, reflection of a satellite that was already there. And you go, well, I, reflections don't, you know, you can't do that. Uh, they may be absolutely just covering the thing they are tracking and they don't want to say, Hey, we know about the secret Russian satellite that went over right there. They're, they're not going to say that. And of course, we have to remember and keep in mind just how littered space is, right? I mean, in addition to all the things we know that are there, the things we don't know that are there, then there's all the trash and there's so much space junk out there. So space is littered. Yeah. I, right. Yeah. I mean, there's the, both sides of the coin. Space is really big, as Douglas Adams said, right? But uh, yeah, there's also an increasing number amount of trash. And then now we've got all the, the constellations that are making strings of, you know, uh, satellites that are making all the astronomers angry because <laughs> there are all these streaks getting in the way of things that they're trying to take a look at. Um, so, yeah, space is getting more full. So yeah. there's a lot, of, a lot of data up there, too, now. Well, it is our final frontier. That's right. <laughs> Let's transition now because 
you talked about space getting full. I mean, I, I hope it doesn't get less full now, but, uh, you know, we recently saw the headlines about big old aerospace, you know, and like uh, yeah. many other uh, businesses around the world having to shutter, you know, perhaps temporarily laying off uh, employees and big low aerospace certainly laid off every single one of their employees. Um, and Ben, I, I know that, uh, you know, you are somebody who worked for Bigelow Aerospace. And I got to say, I mean, when you worked at Bigelow, that was like a, you know, super giddy nerd moment for me, like knowing that you were there. Um, and I, I knew how much me fun too. you had working on this project. It was great. Um, I'm a big, big fan of private space and certainly big fan of that, that, I mean, just super geeky uh talking about this but you know the, the inflatable habitats and just all that that cool stuff that uh you know is going on with Bigelow Aerospace and other private space companies but now with the you know with Bigelow seemingly shuttering um what do you think the future is for that company i mean purely speculating of course yeah it's strictly my opinion i mean i still have people there that i know and yeah. the people who've come after me who took over where i left off I'm a, we've we've formed a tight network and um, you know, of course, everyone was devastated over there. Um, it's it's hard to say. I mean, there you know, anyone who's filed with Bigelow Aerospace knows that there tend to be routine layoffs over there, and they tend to move on a few year cycle, and it tends to track with things like the stock market performance, uh, because Robert Bigelow funds it all out of his pocket. So, I mean, it, you know, you, that's it's no fault to say that they're. I don't mean that necessarily in a negative way. It's no fun to go through, but. If he's paying for it out of his pocket, he has to do what's right for the, you know, right. his company. Um, having said that, you know, it seems clear to everyone who I talked to who left that this is it. You know, they're they're packaging things up. I mean, they're. I think they're. So I've heard some people mention expecting, hoping, and expecting to see things on the auction block instead of just the dumpster because they at least want to take yeah. some of this cool stuff home. You know, and yeah. pay, they pay mm -hmm. for it. To, right? um, on the other hand. I've heard rumors that uh, Bigelow himself has talked about. Well, you know, when things pick back up, we'll just we'll just hire we'll just hire everyone back again. And I, my own experience working for the guy, it, it's completely insane to to think that that would work. Like everyone's going to have to get a job. There's no other real aerospace in Las Vegas. So that Valley is going to clear of that expertise. Yeah. And it sounds completely plausible though. I think in, if, based on how I saw him hire and fire people and his, his tendency to think that aerospace engineers and scientists are a dime a dozen and just waiting to break the door down and move to Vegas. Um, I think he might actually think, Oh, in a few months I'll put all the calls for positions there again. Uh, and people just, show up well I mean, people have families they can't withstand you know a layoff round every three years yeah. uh so me personally i think i think it's a possible that he doesn't think it's over but b i think it's over i mean i i don't know how as a company they'll be able to recover for something like this mm -hmm. particularly when they still have beam attached to the space station this is what yeah. confused me and this is strictly my speculation they, there's still a Bigelow Aerospace module called BEAM, the Bigelow Expandable Activ Activity Module, mm -hmm. excuse me, and they've got a contract with NASA to maintain that through 2028. How are you going to do that in a company with no staff? So if I were NASA, I'd be looking at that going, whoa, hey. Uh, so NASA is going to have to do something, and there are plenty of other companies that deal with inflatable space technology, mm -hmm. ILC mm -hmm. Dover being a key, you know, they, they invented TransHab that was packaged and sold to Bigelow to make all of Bigelow's technology. So I wouldn't be surprised if quite to Bigelow's quite a big of a surprise if NASA didn't turn around and go, ILC Dover, we're going to award you the beam, the rest of the beam contract. And yeah. Bigelow was like, wait, what? Yeah, so uh, yeah. I was going to ask you that, um, you know, on on that topic, because in addition to Beam, uh, Bigelow Aerospace also has, you know, additional contracts with NASA. You know, one in particular being to do a base on the moon, right? I mean, that's yeah. something that's in development. So, what happens to those contracts? Yeah, I've, you know, so the 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 next step contracts with NASA to develop a habitat uh, that was for the Lunar Gateway. And that, so that was going to be the, the moon orbiting space station from which the Artemis missions would, you know, sort of prepare, descend and then return and then head back to Earth. Well, yep. with the latest congressional appropriations bill, they've eliminated 
the necessity of the gateway in Artemis, mm-hmm. at least through the first, I think, block four launches. Well, that's terrifying if you're any of those people with those contracts, because what it's basically saying is, well, if there's not enough money, we're going to skip the gateway and just go straight to the moon yeah. for Artemis. Mm-hmm. Well, well uh, since when has <laughs> NASA had too much money? Right. So what are they really saying? They're really saying, well, you know, we're probably not going to do a full gateway. And so I don't think that there's ultimately going to be a lot that comes out of these more advanced habitation studies for gateway other than some very nice reports showing some ground test data. Again, just my opinion. Um, yeah. yeah, because and- that that the the moon uh sort of base that they were supposed to do that was uh, technically supposed to be in late 2020s right or or late this year or later in the decade i mean that was it, on the docket right yeah it was it was i mean they what they were you know this all started with well can we move iss to the lunar orbit you know let can we is that something we could do nasa was talking about things like that uh and so they're leaving iss here as a commercial proving ground and axiom um I don't know if it's Axiom Aerospace or Axiom Space, they just won the contract to put a commercial space station module on the space station. Exactly what Bigelow, what we had been working to do with the B-330 for years, and Bigelow didn't even apply, which blew all of our minds because that's, th- that's the thing that's actually sitting there. That could a- and Bigelow was worried that they wouldn't have enough money to ultimately fund everything through the development. But so he didn't apply for that is working on the gateway, which NASA just said they won't fund. And then he pulled the plug on his company. Well, the one contract he does have is apparently, well, again, this is my experience, but he never really thought too highly of beam. Uh, you know, it seemed like it was, it was this little thing that they did just to get to the B three thirty. you know, again, I'm talking my personal experience with how I saw him, his thinking during meetings and things like, Oh yeah, there's this beam thing. Let's get back to B three thirty. Um, so I don't know what's going on. I mean, the fact that he didn't apply to put a B-330 on, on it, like basically the thing that was crafted seemingly for him, uh, I think it means it's over. But, you know, mm. who, who knows? Really hard so to here's a sort of unrelated or maybe related side note. Um, do you happen to know if there's still any usefulness, any, any sort of science or, or, or evaluation still going on with Genesis 1 and 2, or are they just space junk? I mean, I don't work for them anymore. I I can say based on what I know of their design, so they're still there. That says something. But so for batteries, these these are the the, the initial sort of habitats that Bigelow launched into space, and they've been there since what two thousand two? No, no, uh, five and six, I think. Right, five and six. Okay, two thousand five, two thousand six. Yeah, launched. I think, I think, I think so. Yeah. And so they're there's they're still in orbit around around Earth. So. Yeah, they were launched on Russian Dnepr rockets, former ICBMs over there. It's very cool stuff. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, their batteries had to go dead years and years and years ago. Mm-hmm. So when I, when I was there, I didn't see any live data come in from those guys. We're just mm-hmm. tracking that they were still there. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in a way, that says something, you know, that you can determine if the thing's not flying apart and pieces aren't coming off and Bigelow and calls from angry government officials going, you got to deal with your space junk problem. Yeah. Um, cause that can't happen if you're going to endanger other people's orbits and things. Uh, but yeah, no, they're still there, but I think they died long ago. Yeah. I think we're going to see the unfortunate effects of, of our current status with, um, COVID-19 hitting the space industry hard in terms of, you know, now we're having to deal with things on our own planet much more. I'm not talking about the space force necessarily, but, uh, you know, just ex- space exploration and, and the, the, in my opinion, funner side of space is going to get put on hold because we're going to have so much to deal with here. And and that's really unfortunate for us space nerds, too, who were really liking the progression of where it was going and the fact that we were going to see this kind of involve into let's put people on Mars, let's put people on the moon again, let's see where this goes. Uh, and now we're going to get a major, major decade setback for this now, which is really unfortunate, but we've got to take care of ourselves, surely. 
Yeah, I, you know, I think I think maybe yes and no, because the exact same argument could have been made when we went to the moon. There was a war and, you know, civil rights it's movement. True. And I mean, it was terrible time to go to. There were a lot of people screaming against space when we did some of our biggest stuff. So, yeah, yes, of course, we can't go outside right now. It's affecting the space industry. But I think, you know, not to sound like Von Braun, but the fact that things like can Space Force save our – I'm not promoting AIAA. I'm just – this is it literally just showed up in my mailbox. <laughs> the fact that popular culture is is now putting on the front of covers, how can Space Force help us in space, you know, save our internet, save our TV, save our GPS, mm-hmm. save our uh, – before we're even ta- – we're not talking about beating the Russians. We're talking about things that we all – we're using right now to talk to each other. Uh, so to me, the silver lining of our time right now is sure things are terrible, but what's happening in space, if we can attach, because what's the one thing that government always funds the military, no matter what the military is always funded. So that's deemed as essential. It's protecting us. There are all these, you know, it's immune to the, the attacks that we space geeks have to fight all the time, which is, well, pure science. That's great. It can help us, but we need to eat. We need to be, you know, da, 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 da. And we, go, we can have the whole trickle-down technology argument. And it's a very protracted thing, and nobody's listening to us by the end of it, where that we can prove that space is actually very valuable to the economy and people's lives. Okay? But we don't even have to do that if we can attach this stuff to Space Force. Mm-hmm. So I see this as a gold, perhaps the glimmer of a golden age where space is just part of sailing the sea. It's no mm-hmm. longer... Like its own thing, space is just another place where we operate to protect the things that we have. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's the trick. Maybe that's we've grown up when we no longer talk about space like space. And we just talk about space as, oh, it's not 200 miles that way. It's 200 miles that way. I, I like your it's optimism. The, yeah, It's the eternal optimist in me, you know. Well, Ben, another topic I want to discuss with you. Um, Maureen and I recently started a a new show that is essentially an after show for a new series on History Channel called The Secret of Skinwalker Ranch. And our show is The Skinwalker Debrief, where we, with one of the executive producers of the show, discuss each episode of that series. And cool. the series the series just premiered and you know, Skinwalker Ranch is this home to all sorts of strange things that, that happen to people. People have different experiences on the ranch. They have different physiological uh, effects that they, they report having on the ranch. And this first episode uh, was kind of interesting because it was it was focused on digging or I guess not digging on the ranch. People throughout time have always been told, don't dig in this area because bad things will happen. And it was brought up on the show that where Skinwalker Ranch is located in northeastern Utah is precisely where, you know, a lot of the fallout would have been from the nuclear tests in Nevada. And I know that you, uh, you know, are basically a radiation expert, right? You're, you're a scientist who's dealt a lot with radiation. And I wanted to get your take on this and, uh, Hear what you had to say about, you know, whether nuclear fallout could possibly explain some of what people report experiencing on the ranch. Well, I, okay, yes, I, I, I come at this from a very deep place of knowledge. I mean, I, I worked uh, out at the test site actually for about a decade. Yep. And um, I actually did my own investigation in Snow Canyon, just north of St. George, where I went to collect my own soil samples on my own wow. time. I ran them basically a, a um, radiation analysis, because a part of this story is the downwinder story, and one of those sub-stories is this nuclear fallout killed John Wayne, because he filmed a movie mm. called The Conqueror, which is ridiculous. He's playing Genghis Khan with his southern drawl, which is hysterical. You should watch it sometime if you haven't seen it. Uh, but, you know, there's a, there's a story out there that, you know, half the, half the crew died of cancer because they shot there a couple years after uh, one of these tests went off at the site that sprinkled fallout outside the boundaries. Now, what I found going out there myself, and you can do the math yourself, but what I found is but a hint of a trace of cesium-137, which you can find anywhere in the world now because there's global fallout. So the, between U.S. and Russian testing, there's now a fine atomic layer 
some molecules just about everywhere that you can find um, that have cesium-137 with them, and it's a trace. I did not find any pervasive extra contamination from those shots. And further, what I found was there's a, a giant, uh, basically a volcanic layer of rock that's naturally enriched in uranium and its, its radioactive daughters so that it was like a thousand times stronger than the cesium source. So um, there's, there's that. So what I found is people tend to ignore that Utah is one, I think it's the nation's premier site for mining uranium. So natural radioactive deposits. So that's one, one thing. It's just because there's radioactive material there. It may have nothing to do with human activity. Uh, the second thing is all those tests, when a nuclear weapon goes off, it creates a lot of very energetic, energetic radioactive material, which means it's very shiny, but cools off or dims down very quickly. So uh, there's no radioactivity left, effectively, from any of those tests, even if you go onto the test site and stand at ground zero where all those craters were, and you hold a, a meter out, um, you might get maybe a couple times background levels, but that's more than, that would be more than a million times below the radiation level that would cause you a, a health hazard right there. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing. Time has really worked for cooling off all of, the, at least the nuclear testing products. Mm -hmm. If there's natural radioactive material, that can be much longer lived. But you know, keep in mind, there are cities at Hiroshima and Nagasaki right now. You just There's a freeway and you drive by and then houses and buildings and there's a little monument that says, Duke blew up here. And then, you know, so they're fine. So there's been enough time elapsed so that that doesn't, you know, there's no hazard from the, the fallout itself. It's, they've decayed away. Um, and so, you know, from that perspective, and then if you actually look at the, the cancer rates in Utah, even then, when fallout, you know, when the story first came out in the early 80s, as it turns out, there was one paper in the Journal of American Medical Association in 84 where the doctor basically – how do I say this? He didn't fake all his answers, but he told all of the people who participated in his study to tell him whatever they had, and then he did not medically validate it. So his paper is based on just their word. And uh, there was a politician that went by just beforehand that said, now's our chance to stick it to the government. If you want your paycheck, tell them all the cancers you got. And so that, that paper in 84 became the source of the downwind story. But in 85 and 86, there were rebuttals that came out from the National Cancer Institute, the Utah Cancer Registry, the head of oncology from Salt Lake Medical, saying, we don't see all these cancers that you're saying we see. And then if you actually look at the Utah cancer incidents in those counties, it's amongst the lowest in the country. Hmm. So uh, the story kind of unravels if you really look at the data. I'm not saying that cancer isn't terrible. It is. And anyone who gets cancer is a tragedy. And people look for meaning. And people also point to, you know, well, what about all the government payouts? Well, yes, there's a list of potential cancers that would qualify because they could have been caused by those sorts of exposures. But, I, you know, again, I used to work out there. It's actually more expensive to do a dose reconstruction study to pay the five scientists for a couple of years to try and figure out what's your family background, genetics, and what did you eat that year, and what was it? Da, 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 da. Ultimately, that's more expensive than the payout. So what everyone sees as an admission of guilt is just an admission of scientific complexity, <laughs> but nobody's able to say those words. And so, you know, the news just says, oh, another government payout, another, you know, it's the same story. The government did something carelessly and people suffered and died. So uh, in my personal and professional opinion, uh, there's not a whole lot of traction when you start to pull threads on that mm -hmm. sweater. There are, there are deadly surprises waiting for people, especially today, from the testing that went on at the uh, former Nevada test site. And now, would you, so so if but if we're talking about uranium uh, and poisoning, um, what would, in your opinion, be the would there be psychological effects on both? Not only like would okay, so some of the things that they have seen recently and that they talked about in the first episode was the whole hillside randomly lit up uh, at night. And uh, also, and that was using, you know, uh, night vision technology uh, cameras. Yeah. Um, there was really strong radiation over what they call Skinwalker Ridge. And um, they also have a lot of 
unexplained cattle deaths. So I guess what my question is, is uranium poisoning, would that, or if that area was rich with uranium, uh, would that cause these extreme high levels of radiation and or could that have a, a cause on livestock randomly dying? I'm not talking about the cattle mutilation where they're finding yeah. precision cuts, but but just unexplained cattle death. No, that's a great question. Um, actually, there's a place out on the test site that was called the EPA farm where uh, for decades the scientists with the government performed exactly that kind of research. And that's actually most of where all our numbers for safety for a nuclear accident at a power plant say where, where they come from. So how do we know when we can or can't eat those crops if they're dusted with something that came from a power plant? It's from this farm called the EPA farm. So they actually took cattle, let them let the feed get sprinkled with radioactive material, including uranium, and then they watched as it went into the plants and went into the cattle and went into the milk and da, 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 da. and there's some horrifying photos of one of those one of those ports that's carved in the side of a living cow with a scientist like reaching into the stomach to pull a sample out in real time. Uh, yeah, that's not really my thing, <laughs> but they they do make really horrifying photos. Um, and what they found is that it's traceable. So I'm not saying I can tell you right here that I know what the answer is. Uh, what I do know is that, I mean, you'd have to have a really saturate the cows with uranium for them mm. to just die from it. But um, it would be in the ecosystem. So you would have elevated uranium and daughters like radium and thorium, et cetera, uh, in the plant life. And then the cows eat graze, they eat the plants. And then so that's the sort of thing you could tell just by, say, taking a sample of the cow's milk and sending it out. Hmm. Um, for a radiological analysis, at least you could tell based on diet whether or not there is an, an elevated amount of radioactive material in that environment that they're, you know, wherever they're eating. Um, and yeah, I mean, sure. But I mean, as a geologist, I think if cows are dropping dead, the, people love to go to radiation because it's mm -hmm. sort of mysterious and it's cool. And But I would check for mercury poisoning, I mean, or arsenic. I mean, there are plenty of other toxic metals out there in the world that don't spit out gamma rays uh, that are really deadly. So uh, they're, they're, I think, cinnabar mine. Cinnabar is a min mineral that naturally contains mercury uh, that I know we're out in that area and, and things like that. So, yeah, if animals are dropping dead, the first thing I'd check out is, yes, the geology, but it might not have to have been radioactive. I think quicker, deadlier agents are just chemically deadly. Here's another question for you. So again, on this, this premiere episode, the, the, the theme of it, the focus is on digging and the, you know, warning to not dig because people who have gone digging on the property have, it's resulted in physical ailments, disorientation uh, being one of the minor ones. But what's something from a geological standpoint, uh, you know, that could cause that sort of effect on a human to like just dig into the ground and then experience disorientation? And what are some of the other symptoms, Maureen? Oh, well, I mean, just seeing strange things, which would cause, you know, hallucinations. And then um, in this particular case that they've mentioned, um, there was uh, one of their team experience, uh, like all of a sudden got a large bump on his head and had cerebral uh, swelling and they couldn't explain it. And basically his, uh -huh. his skull split open, so to speak. Yeah, he had like a big um, goose egg on the back of his yeah. head and like the skull like deformed. And so that, that might be completely separate. <laughs> let's, yeah. let's, let's start at the very beginning. From like, definitely, with, yeah. Yeah, so let's start with, you know, what could potentially cause disorientation and maybe even hallucinations? Yeah, I'd say so, you know, those are central nervous system effects. And many toxic metals will go straight to that. And we that's why we don't have lead paint anymore. So one of the first things that comes to my mind is, well, sounds like maybe there's some lead exposure or, again, mercury can start to do some of the same sorts of things. So the first things I would you know, check off the list before going to more uh, exciting or exotic explanations would be, well, let's check out what the mineralogy is down there. I mean, most of it out there is like an alluvial basin. So what's in the surrounding ridges that eons ago washed down into where the Skimwalker Ranch is and um, figure out what's being deposited. Uh, one other thing that came to mind is they recently found, a lot of people don't know that asbestos is, an, it, is formed naturally. Hmm. So it's not only just 
you know, human made, you can grow that. The earth grows it. So um, they found that just outside of Las Vegas, right next to a school. So it got a lot of people very excited. Um, and so things like that, yes. I mean, it, there, there are lots of reasons why it might not be a great idea to dig in a, a specific place in Mother Earth. And a lot of them, they might sound sophisticated, like there's an asbestos layer right there. But the Earth can create a lot of things that are surprisingly sophisticated uh, that people don't really know about. So, yeah, a lot of the central nervous system, there are plenty of minerals and chemicals within them that could cause sort, the sorts of things you're talking about, central nervous system effects. Very Let's go take some samples. <laughs> you're making me curious. I, I want to go get some samples. Like, come on, we can do this. <laughs> I would love that. Yeah. <laughs> Maureen, do you remember when they were up on the ridge on the show and they got you know crazy high readings with their their trifle meters or whatever they had? Do you remember what those readings were? Like, what was peaking? Uh that they were making a big deal about? It was definitely over 15 or 14, 15, 16. Whatever it was. Yeah, I don't know what they were measuring. Look, yeah, it might have been higher than that. I don't remember, but it was, uh, quote, dangerously high levels. So yeah, I don't uh, know what they were measuring. Yeah. Or what. I would love to have a chance to address this because a tri-field meter, so when people say they're measuring radiation, facially you can be referring to almost anything around us, the lights mm -hmm. on my wall. Are emitting radiation, you can detect that. Uh, all electromagnetic waves are radiation. I know you guys know that, but it's worth saying. So when someone takes a tri-field meter out, what they're measuring is changes in the local magnetic field. Depending on the type of meter, you're either looking for, you can look for alternating current or direct current, flux measurements. Uh, sometimes the units may be in Tesla or milligauss. You're looking at the strength of a magnetic field or if there's an electrical field. Um, none of those are ionizing radiation. So that, that has that's completely separate from the sorts of radiation that can actually break molecules and cause damage and give you cancer. Uh, so it's just, it's just worth saying that when they say dangerously high levels, automatically uh, I've got like bells going off because you can have dangerously high radio transmissions, right, or microwave antenna radiation, uh, but that's just going to burn you. I mean, you would, you would know if you were in a dangerously high radio or microwave beam because you would be screaming in pain and like diving out of the way. And the military has even like weaponized some of that stuff for crowd control. There's some terrible videos where they were like, I'm going to stand here, pay me right. 50 bucks to stand here. And then they take the microwave beam and the guy's like, ah, and it's totally involuntary. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, just, uh, the right tool for the right job, if they're trying to address the question about, say, fallout from the test site, you would not go out with a tri-field tri meter. You'd go out with a sodium iodide detector or uh, a Geiger-Muller tube. A little, that's not going to have great resolution, but um, it, yeah. Yeah. I think at this, at this point, I mean, obviously – this is a show, so they're trying to um, show things slowly, and and sure. obviously the general public is is not as smart as you, and uh, <laughs> uh, not not, that, it, not wow. that the whole general, but I know I didn't mean it like that. You know what I mean. Anyways, <laughs> they are not specialized in this arena, so it's right. simpler to say these levels are dangerously like these are not normal levels; these are unusual for. Right. And right. We don't know what's causing them in this area. To then be able to move to what you say and let, hey, let's kind of try try to start ruling out these possibilities, and this is a better tool for it, and let's bring that in and do that. And uh, and I think, I mean, for me, this is great. I, I'm loving learning more about this because the obviously the makeup of this place is causing a lot of weird stuff to happen. And uh, I mean, for me personally, I think like the number one thing that needs to be analyzed and then maybe ruled out or not ruled out is is the geology and what's happening uh in the soil and in the ground and like you brought up the um livestock eating uh various materials around and what that's doing to their makeup and uh, the water and the water yeah i yeah. i think that's that's very uh curious and and it's making me like think too much now <laughs> i want to go do all the science is there anything you can speculate about with uh, Maureen's question about the the ridge, the the ridge they mentioned that like was glowing for a while and then stopped glowing? Is there anything from a geolo yeah, well, ge geologic perspective that could maybe explain that? 
it depends on what kind of infrared camera they were using. So if it was right, so there's a, a concept called thermal relaxation, which is actually how you can try and tell what minerals are when you're not there, say on Mars, is that some minerals will let heat go um, at different rates than others, right? So if you get something that's been heated up in the late afternoon sun and then the sun goes down real quickly, it's a very clear night, then you can have the very high thermal, you know, the good conductors, they'll let their heat go really quickly and you'll leave the different minerals that don't do it so quickly, they'll be warmer. So they'd be brighter if you're using like a very sensitive FLIR camera. Um, so it could just be that that patch, whatever the geology was on that part of, if it was a, say a south facing slope, which would have been facing the sun, uh, that could have held onto its heat and then released it over the next few minutes. Um, whereas the things that weren't facing the right direction or made a different mineralogy, they wouldn't. So that's one thing to check is, yeah, I can make, I can make a mountain glow. Uh, you just heat it up and then, but it has to be the right stuff that cools down at a different rate than the stuff around it. And then it would seem like, well, that hill's glowing and that hill is not. That's one idea. Interesting. Uh, I, yeah, I had another thought, which is you talk about places that we know about that are special, that have weird fields going on. And the first thing that popped into my head is a little place called Rainier Gamma. And it is on the moon. And what it is, it's a very, it's, they're called lunar swirls. You should look them up sometime. They're very strange, white, swirly patterns on the surface of the moon in this one little area that have no explanation at all. And uh, my master's work actually related a lot to them, what the super, super short version is. Uh, we finally figured it out. When space weathering occurs, whenever there's not an atmosphere. So basically the sun's spitting out all this radiation and it's cooking and baking all the minerals that are getting hit by it. And they'll slowly turn dark. Sort of think of it like a desert patina. You know, the longer something's out there, the darker it gets. Different mechanism, but the same idea. So space weathering, right? Well, in this particular strange area on the moon, this little spot, uh, it's like a mile wide, um, all these swirls, they're the light swirls are actually spots where there's been no weathering whereas everything else around it was. But there are no features that relate to it. It's almost mm. like someone took a paintbrush and just said, thou shalt not weather here. And if you mm. look at it, they make, they make not swirls so much, but little dipoles. So it's actually a natural magnetic shield. There are little patches of rock that had strong magnetic fields cooked into them in the, the moon's ancient history that survived strong enough to deflect the radiation and then leave these little pristine stripes along the surface of the moon. And so that is an example of a very strange power that's unique to that spot on the moon. And it's derived from the geology that leads to strange effects on the surface that at first glance, seem like they're out of nowhere. Like, how does this, how is this happening? Uh, so again, you know, you think about the, the ridges around Skinwalker, I'm not saying that there are magnetic anomalies around there, but, that's also certainly, I mean, I guess I'm saying it wouldn't be the first time we've seen something like that. Wow. That's really cool. You have to go to, you have to go, you have to, go to a different planet to find it. But yeah. I love That's that. That's super interesting. Yeah. Well, Ben, it's great to see you back on TV. So I, I know with TV shows, you usually don't know when you participate in shows uh, how often you're going to pop up in the show. But uh, do you have any sense of, of how many more episodes we're going to see you in of Black Files Declassified? Well, again, I haven't seen the finals, but I can tell you that I had my hands deep into these uh, as they as they went along. So I I would expect to pop up a couple or maybe a few more times. That's awesome. And like Maureen said, you know, yeah. there's all, all these people involved. It was it was fun to see Amy Sure title pop up in the first episode. That was yeah. unexpected. And I texted her right, right after that. So it's cool to see you on TV. And she's like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that one. Because like you said, you know, this was a while ago and like it's not supposed to be to the summer, but now they decide to air it. So she was totally caught off guard, too. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's fun. I mean, you know, the world shrinks, I guess, as we get uh, get farther into this stuff. So, uh, you know, hey, if it does well, let's get you guys on, right? <laughs> yes, that sounds like a good plan to me. <laughs> awesome, Ben. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, bud. Thanks for having me.
I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for giving me a million more questions that I have to now research. Well, <laughs> <laughs> come on. I, I like this stuff, you know? Yeah. No, I'm fascinated. But I think, you know, I think there's, there is an answer. If it's out there and if you're dogged and relentless, you'll find it. And it's good to know those types of answers that are possibilities because they give you something to look for and work towards and something to eliminate, right? You cross off the boxes and it allows you to move on and hopefully eventually find the real answer. So I love it. I you love it. You will. If you keep going, you will. I mean, that's, you know, that's the one thing that I hear a lot of other scientists gripe which is why I'm so excited to have an opportunity to try and get into some things like this, which is, you know, the scientists will go, well, why didn't, why didn't they ask about this? Or why didn't they do that? Or why didn't they? I'm like, guys, they have no idea. Like you've got people with earnest questions without the expertise and no one with the expertise will actually engage them in their earnest questions. So how in the world are they supposed to know their unknown unknowns? We're not helping. And so they're just spinning around, ask, sort of asking the same questions over and over. And then it's like a mystery with a capital M where you may have the answer over here. But if you never walk over there, if it's not, you know, if it's not worth your time, then this is how we have this huge chasm. And no one believes science stuff because scientists are way over there and huddled in their towers, you know, looking at minutia. And everyone over here just wants to know what the hell's going on. So... That was always my biggest frowny face with chasing UFOs is you weren't given the appropriate chance to do science. Or if I was, it was cut from the show. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, we, we all know. We feel your pain. <laughs> Well, citizens, that's going to do it for this episode. Big thanks to Ben for spending some time with us today. If you're interested in following everything Ben's up to, he's on Twitter at BW McGee. You can find more episodes of Unknown on all the major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so you're notified when we publish new episodes. And leave a positive review for the show if you feel inclined. You can always find this show at RoguePlanet.tv because Unknown is a Rogue Planet production. RoguePlanet.tv is your home for all the strange. And we recently launched a new show over at Rogue Planet called The Skinwalker Debris. This is a show that Maureen and I do with TJ Allard, one of the executive producers of history's new series, The Secret of Skinwalker Ranch. Our show dissects each episode of the TV series and provides an inside look at the making of the series. The show's offered as both an audio podcast and a video show on YouTube. If you're interested in the fascinating case of Skidwalker Ranch, check that out. Thanks again for hanging out with us today. I'm Jason McClellan. Do us a favor, friends. Always treat the UFO subject with the cautious and responsible skepticism it deserves question everything. Have the courage to form your own opinions. Keep truth as the focus of your quest, even if the truth conflicts with your opinions. And, of course, stay strange. Stay strange.